Now, if you're watching on YouTube and not just listening on a podcast platform or on my Substack, you probably are thinking, wow, she's looking radiant today. Yeah, I am. Why? Because I am super, super excited about this episode today. I have some special guests and we're going to dive into a great, deep, insightful conversation, a literary conversation, a cultural conversation. This is the perfect time to have this conversation. Actually, anytime is the perfect time for this conversation. I can't wait for you to meet my guests and participate in our conversation. So without further ado, as they say, here we go. And my guests have joined me for the Adrian Ross show. And like I just told you, I am so excited for this group of, uh, shall we say intellectuals? Uh, we're going to bring some insight into our conversation. But before I even let you know what that conversation is going to be, let me tell you a little something about the guests we have today. Now, some are no stranger to you. Actually, I believe only one of our guests um, has never been on the show. But let's, uh, you know, maybe you're just tuning in. Somehow you just found us and you're just tuning in for the first time. So I'll start with Marie. Marie Strader is one of the founding members of African-American Conservatives, also known as ACONS. She has served as social media director for a number of statewide and national political campaigns. In 2019, Ms. Strader was appointed as a national advisory board member and surrogate for Black Voices for Trump. She currently serves on the America First Policy Institute's America First National Engagement Council. Formerly the Digital Comms Director for the Republican Party of Texas, Marie, is, Marie currently fills the same role for Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. And uh, hello, Marie, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, my pleasure. And DK, DK is really, to use Marie's word last time, pithy. And so he just jumped right to the point. DK is a co-founder, producer, and blogger for African-American conservatives. He is a native and current New Jerseyite. Now, Chad Franklin, uh, wave to us, Chad. <laughs> DK, I have you wave. DK, make sure you wave. All right, back to Chad. Chad Franklin is AVP of Education Equity and Director of the Option Center at Goddard Riverside. Did I pronounce that right, Chad? That's correct. At Goddard Riverside and the former Executive Director of the Be a Champion Foundation. Chad brings with him a relentless focus on effective program development and a heart for eradicating issues that cripple communities. Franklin's reputation for developing integrated solutions has many consider him a most revered problem solver in the nonprofit community. He is a graduate of Stanford Graduate School of Education and has over 27 years of experience developing curricula and building programs and capacity for organizations such as the NYC Department of Education, Monroe County Corrections, the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, and Rikers Island Correctional Facility. Franklin has overseen three educational companies and holds extensive nonprofit experience in leadership and consultant positions with organizations such as the Youth Development Institute, Teaching Matters, and Hospital Audiences Incorporated. Thank you for being here, Chad. All right, Kia. Very glad to be here. Yes, um, I'm, I'm 
I'm most glad. Uh, Kia <laughs> has been here uh, several times and I was just recently on her podcast, Bold and Beautiful. Kia is a veteran educator of the public and private sectors with over 24 years of experience. She graduated from Brockport College with a BS in political science, minoring in English and criminal justice, where she pursued her teaching certifications in Florida and Texas. She currently teaches high school classes in English in Cambridge University's Global Perspectives and research classes in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She also is a board member for the anti-human trafficking nonprofit organization, There Is Hope For Me. Kia is an author, motivational speaker, podcast host of Bold and Beautiful, an ordained pastor serving her community for over 20 years alongside her husband, David, and their three children, Elisha, Cherie, and Jordan. Hello, Kia. Hi. Hi. I'm glad to be on the show. Yeah, I'm glad you're you're all here. And I, I kind of feel like I need to go back to school, hang out with you guys. <laughs> this, I, I'm really excited. Um, really, really excited. I feel like a kid in a candy store. And uh, I want to say too that this is the re a reunion of sorts. Um, yes. if you're if you're listening <laughs> on a podcast plat platform or on my my Substack, um, you might want to go over to YouTube and check out this good looking group. And uh, we're going to be sharing the screen and and showing some things that are vital to our conversation. But however you're tuned in, we're glad you're tuned in. I say it's a reunion of sorts because I went to college with Kia and I also went to college with Chad. And it's been 32 years since I've seen Chad Franklin. I know we look too young, right, Chad? Yes, minus the gray. <laughs> you know, but but man, I'm it's it's wonderful. And Chad and I, I mean, I remember back in college, you know, Chad did the poetry thing, I did the poetry thing, and so it's just perfect because we're gonna be talking about that today. This, let me say, this is not an interview, you know. I do interviews with people, as you know, but this is a conversation. Which is one reason why I wanted to stay in the living room and not go downstairs in my office because I wanted to be relaxed for a conversation. And you know what, guys? I feel like the people are just sort of eavesdropping on the conversation we're about to have. But if you do have a comment and you're on YouTube, leave the comment. If you're not on YouTube, go over to YouTube if you want to leave a comment. All right. This is February. And as we know, February is Black History Month. And I thought the conversation we're gonna to have today is a good way to wrap up Black History Month. But let me say, it's a good conversation to have any time. You know, like, I don't think anybody here believes that they have to wait until February to talk about the things that we're gonna talk about today, all right? So we're gonna get into a rich literature conversation about some authors, you know, poets, playwrights. And part of my teaching was doing what we're going to do right now, talking to people about literature. And I think that's why it's exciting for me because I've been out of the classroom after almost 20 years of teaching. I've been out of the classroom now for a decade. It's hard to believe. It's been so long. But I had some really rich conversations with my students over the course of the years about what we're gonna talk about today. Maya Angelou, Langston Hughes, yes. Lorraine Hansberry, 
maybe some Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Maybe Chad will grace us with uh, uh, one of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poems that I know I heard him <laughs> do in college. But um, let me ask you this. Like I said, this is not just a Black History Month conversation. This is a rich conversation. So I want to throw it to you. And guys, listen, roll with us because I don't know where this is going to end up. <laughs> All right. So listen, when... <clears throat> When did you first become acquainted with some of those names? You know, Maya Angelou, Langston Hughes. Where? How were you introduced to them, and when in your life? Anybody? Anybody can start off. Well, I grew up with them. Uh, Maya Angelou. I, I grew up in San Francisco, so Maya Angelou lived around the corner from my family. I I was. I don't think when I, I had been born yet when she lived there, but I always grew up knowing that she had lived in our neighborhood. So I've always known about Maya Angelou. Um, but Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Langston Hughes, uh, I think around the fifth grade, we had a woman that came in. She taught us uh, lift every voice and sing. She taught us about Langston Hughes and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. It was kind of like our own little mini Black History Month, but it was every week, you know, while I was in, I was in the gifted and talented program. And so we studied all of that rich literature. And I just fell in love with the poetry of Langston Hughes and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So mm, that's good. So not you didn't rely on school, you already had a well, I learned about them in school, uh, their poems, but I, I, I took it to heart. And read a lot on my own like you know we always did the summer reading program and i would check out their books and read uh poetry and mm -hmm. just loved it i think for me uh definitely elementary school it's so interesting um because i just got out of a board meeting with uh, a good friend of mine dr green who grew up with Langston Hughes uh, and the building he lives in in New York, Ralph Ellison uh, lived in, right? And so the Langston Hughes house is not very far um, from where I am here in Harlem now, but I always knew, and this is so interesting, um, that I would live in Harlem even before I knew what Harlem was, even before I even really knew what the Harlem Renaissance was. But I think we started doing black history assembly assemblies in school I think in elementary school. And then by the time I got to the School of the Arts for high school, we were doing them by ourselves, like without administration. But I, I and then we also had something in, in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, um, Dr. Perkins. He was one of our black teachers that went to Tuskegee University um, that taught at number four school. And he had uh, a group called the Black Seeds. Now, I wasn't a part of the Black Seeds because um, I didn't go to number four school, but they did poetry and and, and we did poetry in school. So, I, you know, those are some of my greatest minds. Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou, Paul Lawrence Dunbar um, that I still, you know, um, beckon as W.E.B. Du Bois says, I beckon Shakespeare and he winces not, which means I call on them all the time. So yes, but early, early, early. Okay, good. Wow. Well, I think I um I, I used to always read, always go to the library. My mother would always, my parents would always um, you know, have you know tons of books around and they would talk about Maya Angelou, but I don't think I really delved into her her um work and even, you know, Toni Morrison, not to throw in another author, but just understanding Black literature and where that came from until I was probably in high school. Um, I grew up in upstate New York, so we didn't really have any any um, programs. We really didn't celebrate it too much with Black History Month. You know, that was all from our family, family mm -hmm. reunions. So I think, you know, I've done some, you know, uh, 
some poetry readings at our family reunions. And, you know, and that was a really yeah. rich, you know, that's kind of where we got our, our, you know, feet wet or me, you know, in, in that time period, my sister was a little bit older. My brothers were, you know, six, eight years younger than I was. And, um, and then of course in college, you know, I couldn't wait to take the classes, you know, black history, the, you know, the black family, the, you know, African-American literature and, and all those great classes that we had up at Brockport. And, and I thought, wow, but I do remember I did my, um, my AP literature, um, paper, my main paper on um, Toni Morrison. And so, and, you know, and that just really opened up my eyes to, you know, just the black experience. And, um, and I want to say that year I read, I know where the cage bird, um, know why the cage bird sings. And um, it just really, really, now since then I have taught that to my students, you know, we've had excerpts in, in our, in our books and our literature books. So, um, you know, maybe a decade later. So oh. definitely interesting. Yeah. What about you, DK? Well, growing up, I was always a very avid reader. I was heavily immersed in the world of uh, James Joyce and William Shakespeare and Faulkner, Mark Twain, all these other great writers. And I was also a very passionate writer myself. I wrote a lot of short stories. I wrote a play. I wrote a, a lot of poetry. But I did not really discover Black literature until I was in my mid-20s when I happened to pick up a copy of a Beloved, which is still my favorite, it's still perhaps my favorite book written by an American author, at least um, at least that, that I can remember. So uh, I read Beloved by Toni Morrison. Of course, I read uh, Tar Baby and Sula and uh, all her other great novels. After that, I was so enchanted by her. And, you know, it led to me reading other Black authors also. So I came to the party late. Mm -hmm. Unlike the three of the four of you, but I, I think I think I've gotten there over the years. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Toni Morrison, although she wasn't on my, my list there. Uh, I was talking to DK and Marie on their show recently, and I was saying how Toni Morrison's work. I mean, I would read Toni Morrison and I would have to pause and take a breath because the way she could construct a sentence so powerful and it just it just drew me. I did um, an independent study in grad school on, on Toni Morrison also. All right, so it sounds to me from listening to you all that you found black literature, it is literature in general, okay? But it's black literature. You found that inspiring, you found it useful, it opened up a world. So. Our children today, you know, some of us have been in education, are children today experiencing this, uh, this type of um, experience also? Is it valuable? I'm going to ask two questions. I shouldn't, but I'm going to ask two at one time. So you can put that together. There are people when it comes to Black history or Black literature or Black History Month or whatever, who will say, well, I don't really have a lot of Black students. And so that's why I don't go down that road. What you have read, what you have experienced, is it unique to just Black people? Is it just for Black people or is it for everyone? Oh, totally. I think, um, you know, all literature is for everyone, number one. So I think, you know, to, to isolate, you know, the, um, you know, a, a historical perspective, an ethnic perspective is foolish. Um, and, um, and it just, you know, is ignorant. And so our students want to learn. And when I introduce things to them that they've never heard, 
they are just, wow, I never knew that. I never heard that, you know, and then they become interested in, and, and, you know, if I don't do that, I'm not doing my job as an educator. So I think what is exciting for me when I share any kind of literature, but, you know, when I share things that I know they haven't heard, like Black poetry, Langston Hughes and Dream Deferred and, you know, or even parts of A Raisin in the Sun and, you know, even clips, if I use that, you know, uh, or a phenomenal woman who could forbid, you know, or, um, you know, some of the poems that we were talking about that you we had talked about previously, Adrian, um, they, you know, you have to act it out. You have to, you have to, you know, you have to read. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can't just read the poem. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, you have to get into it. And they're like, their eyes are wide and I don't care how old they are, whether it's, you know, I taught middle school for many years. Um, and then, you know, of course, and they're they're so easy to capture, um, but high schoolers, you know, they kind of, it depends on the day sometimes, but they are, they just, you know, they capture the essence of what you're trying to say and then they can understand it. So I really enjoy, I enjoy that. Yeah. So what would you say, Chad, to the people who feel like, well, that's for the Black experience and I don't have anybody living the Black experience. Why should they do any of this? Absolutely. I would say um, Black authors, Black literature, particularly here in America, but not just in America, right? You know, we 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 read, um, oh, it's, it's not even coming to me um, right now, the African author. Um, but when you think in terms of Baldwin, right, another country, right, like these characters are so amazing and so rich. And if you have any insight into New York City or or Paris, right, um, it's it's tantalizing to the mind. Right. And so it's 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 a, it's an American experience, but it's a life experience, too. I think um, when you tap into Toni Morrison, right, who has been taken to task, um, you know, about her literatures only having black characters. Right. Um, but that has not stopped, you know, people from being interested in when you talk about Alice Walker. Right. And the color purple. Um, I remember I was teaching literature at the community college in Rochester. Um, uh, I think it's the beauty when the other dancer is the self right there's there's a, there's an ability that alice walker has that takes us into that's universal right mm -hmm. and so um when you think in terms of the invisible man right ralph ellison like this stuff is uh you know what i mean it's it, it's it's amazing mm -hmm. so i would say that um you know if you love literature then you definitely want to read some of these authors because it's 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 american but it's universal mm -hmm. as well Anybody else want to chime in on that? I'll just say, you know, I homeschooled our kids, my three children. And as we talked about on the show, one of the reasons was because I wanted to be able to teach Black history whenever I wanted to. I didn't want it contained to a month. Um, and so it was sprinkled in everything we did. I remember vividly my daughter at a pretty young age falling in love with Ain't I a Woman? You know, uh, and wanting to do research about it. You know, she wanted to know everything about Sojourner Truth. And um, we also, she fell in love with uh, the music of Marian Anderson. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she uh, is pretty musical herself and she just fell in love with her music. So whenever there was an opportunity to sprinkle that in there, we always did. It was just a part of what we did. But I think... You know, um, 
one of the things that I really enjoyed about homeschooling was that you didn't have to do things in a linear way. I think that by using literature, you can make something that's inaccessible to a group relatable because they immerse themselves in the story. And so you get to feel what that's like. Um, even if you can't relate to the culture yourself, if you're not someone that is, you know, part of the black community, it's still accessible because you can imagine you're involved in this world that, you know, an author is constructed and painted for you. And so I think that it is literature for all of us, just like, you know, I can relate to literature about cultures that that I'm not a part of because a an author has painted that picture for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'll just say that I think that um, African American experience is such an integral part of the American experience that you can't understand one without the other. It's like you can't talk about American literature unless you have an understanding of African American literature. It would be like trying to talk about basketball without mentioning African American players. Mm. It's, um, it is not just uh, literature, it's uh, our contribution to history, to science, to, um, mm-hmm. for example, we did an a interview about a year ago with a, a law professor who wrote a book on, the, I think it was the 25 greatest Supreme Court cases in American history, and, uh, mm. and almost every case had to deal with uh, the African Americans, you know, one case had to deal with capturing escaped slaves in northern states. Uh, one was, you know, Brown v. Education. There's a lot of civil rights cases. And if you read his book on civil rights cases, you understand that civil rights, I'm sorry, Supreme Court cases, you understand that the history of the Supreme Court has largely been a history of the Black people. And it's the same with literature. Uh, you can read uh, Faulkner, who, who actually wrote a great deal about Black people, um, mm-hmm. and all these other white authors, but if you don't read the Toni Morrison's, the Ralph Ellison's, the Paul Dunbar's, and August Wilson's, and so forth, you're not getting, uh, you're not getting the essence of American literature, so yeah, I wouldn't separate yeah, I would, the two, would, they belong together. I would piggyback on that, um, DK, yes, I think that's, it's it's just like music, right, so if you're having the full American experience, then African-American music is a, a, a part of that. And so we know that in jazz because you see more, you see a lot of other cultures more than you even do see the African-American culture, like playing jazz now and even listening to jazz, right? And so, um, absolutely. But it was Chinua Achibi, Things Fall Apart, um, yeah. that I was thinking about the uh, the African experience. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great book. Well, you, you know, know, just to piggyback, oh, yeah. can I jump in real quick? Yeah, um, you all ahead. jump. <laughs> um, what DK was saying, you know, um, I'm teaching 11th grade literature. Our curriculum includes The Great Gatsby, you know, mm-hmm. and talking about the American dream. But you can't talk about, you can't even read The Great Gatsby without dealing with the Harlem Renaissance and all the authors. So that's when I bring in Langston Hughes and, you know, they eat that up, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like um, Marie said, I like when the curriculum fits with, it doesn't, it, it, it typically is linear, but, you know, you have to make it, you know, we can't leave things out. You can't, you can't have, the American experience um, without talking about everything. And so obviously that includes the rich heritage that we have and the contributions from, you know, from our brothers and our sisters. Yeah, it's like what Chad said, imagine talking about American music without mentioning jazz or hip hop or 
or rock and or roll gospel. or R&B. Yeah, gospel. It would be exactly. impossible. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you can't, you shouldn't be leaving it out because it's so much of, of everything. And, you know, when I was growing up, I shared this with you, Key, on your show recently, and that is that Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I was introduced to Paul Lawrence Dunbar at a Thanksgiving dinner, I believe, that my, my family uh, was invited to. And there was a woman there. I don't know her name. I've never seen her since, but she had this book, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And she sat there and she would recite this poem and she had mm. this a dialect going with it and all this stuff. And, and it was for my sister and for me, but I remember I was like right there next to her. I, I was, I don't know, maybe 10, I don't know, right? And she's just reading it and she I was loving it. It was, it just brought out everything me. You know, there's an actress in me anyway, you know, which is what, you know, <laughs> teaching, teaching English uh, enabled me to be able to release that also. But she then sent me that book. It was this yellow book, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And it was, I was so in love with it, you know, and not just the sound of her voice, although that mattered, but the message in it. And that was, and I'm going to get back to this because all these years later, I started teaching 96, 97 was my first year teaching. And I still just less than a month ago, even got a message about, and, I, and I'll share that with you after I, I want to get to Lorraine Hansberry, but I, I still get messages from former students who have been transformed by the poetry that we're talking about today. And there are some people who will say, can a poem really do that? Yes. Can a play really do that? Yes. It absolutely can. And I don't, yes. it can, it will. And I want to say this, and I don't want to sound like biased, but I believe there's something about the Black experience mm -hmm. that has a way of touching people in a way. I'm not saying other literature can't, because you guys all know, I mean, I love To Kill a Mockingbird, which wasn't written about by a Black uh, woman. But and that that's been, you know, transforming people's lives, too. But I don't know. There's something about the poetry, at least for me and at least for the students I've had about Maya Angelou, about Langston Hughes, that all these years later, they're married. They have kids. They will tell me about times they have struggled and they talk about that. Not other stuff that I've done, but those mm -hmm. black authors. Yeah. Yeah. It just is what it is. And so I want to transition into Lorraine Hansberry and her play. A Raisin in the Sun. Mm. Now, Lorraine Hansberry was born in the South Side of Chicago in 1930. She died in 1965. She died at 34 years old of pancreatic cancer. Mm. So very young. And um, her play, I didn't know this, she was going to name it Crystal Stare. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell yes. to anybody? Like Crystal Crystal Ain't there no Crystal Stare? Yes. A line oh, from Yes. <laughs> A line okay. from Langston Hughes' poem, Mother to Son. Mother to Son. But instead, she changed it, and she chose A Raisin in the Sun, which is from another Langston Hughes uh, line from his poem, Harlem. Now, for those who are tuned in, I got to say, we're going to have this conversation. We ain't got time to tell you the background of everything. So what we're going to do is encourage you, you <laughs> make sure you check out these works that we're talking about and these authors we're talking about, because we're just going to talk like we know what we're talking about. Because we do, right? So, yes. you know, so read it, watch it, whatever. Now, Lorraine Hansberry was, the uh, Raising the Sun was the first play by a Black woman on Broadway 
and the big screen, 1959 and Broadway, 1961 as a film. And so I want to go back to the poem. I'm going to put up, share the screen and show the poem that she took a line from to name A Raisin in the Sun. And I, I think I could get a volunteer. Yeah, to... I'd love to recite that. I, all of those things are in my cipher all the time. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's. Chad has the voice for it. I was going to say Chad's got the voice for he it. He does. He does. So so me... while while you're doing that, yeah. so interestingly enough, um, maybe two weeks ago, I recited some Lorraine Hansberry um, from the Evening of Dignity that we did back at Brockport uh, years ago. But words that have stuck with me. Um, Forever. And as we're doing work uh, specifically around Black and Latinx males uh, in New York City, right, and preparing them for post-secondary readiness, um, I spoke the words of Lorraine Hansberry, I wish to live, right? I wish to live because life has within it that which is good, that which is beautiful, and that which is love, right? And um, and because I've known all these things, I find them reason enough, and thus I wish to live. Moreover, and because this is so, I wish for others to live for generations and generations and generations and generations. And as I was saying that, I don't even know what brought it to my mind because I, I don't think I had thought about those words in maybe 20 years. Um, and then I learned maybe two weeks later that during that same time, a young man of mine uh, was struggling and fighting for his life and he didn't make it. Um, but it just, for me, was just so telling that, you know, this was coming out of me and I, and I ended it. AI was in the room. So we, we went back and looked at the notes. I, I ended it by saying, and I wish for young black men to live. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we lost him, but you know, those words of Lorraine Hansberry stays with me all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at uh, this one. Holler if you can't see it. You got it? Yes. We got All right. it. Chad, you want to do that for us? I can. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a soul and then run? Does it... Stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet. Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? He took me back. Chad, you only got better with the years. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thank you. Wow. Yes, I do believe you recited that that evening as well. I've heard you. I Yes, I, was, I told me it, I it could have been. Sags. I remember the sags. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So you see the line there, like a raisin in the sun, that, that simile there, right? So my question, though, is how, I mean, obviously, a raisin in the sun, the, the, the play, whether you've watched it, whether you've read it, how was that poem reflected in the play? I mean, she was gonna go with Crystal Stare, which we'll get to that that from mother to son. How is that poem reflected in there? You said the line. Mm -hmm. Which line again? Well, how is that whole poem? Oh, so the whole even poem. even the raisin in the oh, yeah. even just the raisin in the sun part, either one. Mm -hmm. 
Why would she take this? And we're going to talk about, okay, what's the whole message of the play? But let's start there. How is that, you know, what is it about this poem that made her say, I'm going to name this play A Raisin in the Sun? I think so much for me. I and and just put your hand up because I don't. You know this is my stuff. So and I haven't have had a chance to talk about it this way. <laughs> this, this is how I feel. <laughs> yeah. So I go from everything, the symbolism to the little plant in the in the window that wasn't getting any sun, the yeah. sunlight to Walter. You know, um, Walter's dreams, right? Yeah. And 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 it you know, sort of what ha what happened when Willie Harris did what he did, right? So to have it just all, you know, he was already having a hard time having anyone believe in him, right? But then to have it just sort of, you know, snatched away, for me, all of that is a part of, you know, what happens to a, a dream deferred, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, even the, um, the mother who had wished and hoped for all of, you know, for her children to succeed and just, you know, she had planned and, you know, you think about it and, and as a parent, you know, we hope for those things for our kids too. And sometimes they take the turn and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, don't go that way. You know, you're yeah. going to make it longer. You're going to make it harder. Don't go that way. And, you know, and just, and just seeing that and wanting so much to, to direct them in the right path, you know, just be patient, just be patient, little tater tot, you know, and, and then, but, you know, having that, that desire and that, you know, she worked so hard and, and, um, and, and I think that's part of it, you know, what Chad said as well, but there are so many facets of, does your dream dry up like a raisin in the sun, you know, there's so much of that in there, so. Mm. Yeah. So there's the father, right, who we never get to see, but how he he died, right, working hard. And so you yeah. can't squander this money. Right. There's Ruth right. who's dealing with Walter Lee and in their marriage and, you know, and kind of that drying up like a raisin in the sun. Like there's, you know, there's Bernitha right. who is losing her contact with God. Right. And her mother's in my in my mother's house. There's still God. So there's yeah. it's, it's all in there. Yeah. So why? And Marie, maybe you can chime in this. I mean, because the first of all, this as a as an English teacher, I'm like, this is just filled with similes, which is which is beautiful, right? Why does he pose it as a question? His whole poem is a question. Uh, why not? I mean, now we're doing two things, right? We're we're getting into raising the sun, but we're also dealing with the poem because it's in front of us, and I, and I'm sure it relates. Why does it deal with? Why is it a question? Why is why is he asking us? Is the answer in there somewhere? You know, I think it, it sort of goes back to what we talked about um, when we were on your show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the time in which people lived. Mm -hmm. And so that time period and where he lived, there were so many questions and uh, so many different things going on. And I think that was just kind of the quintessential sort of looking for self. I mean, that's sort of what we do as humans anyway, during that phase of life. But then when you have all these other, um, how do I want to express it? All of these other issues that kind of are, are there, it's like peeling back an onion, right? And so to be a young black male in that time period, in that place, with the world changing the way that it was, there are so many questions. And you see so you see that reflected in the literature of the time, mm -hmm. particularly from um, our male writers. So I think that that 
has something to do with it. Is there a biblical allusion there? Oh yeah. Deferred? Oh yes. The Bible That's says from about yes. Hope, pro, hope it's in does um, what makes the heart it sick. Makes the heart sick. Yep. Mm-hmm. But when the dream comes, That's when right. you, the it's a it's a tree of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, although there's questions here, is the answer in there somewhere? Are they separate things, and we're looking for one answer? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester like a so you know? And then why is the last part in italics? Thinking about Lorraine Hansberry's poem, if you can tie those together, why is the last line in italics? I would say it's probably because of that struggle. I mean, we still see it in the community, the 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 frustrations that we feel sometimes, where you do feel like you're gonna explode. I mean, there's so many things that that happen and you aren't really sure how to deal with it Mm -hmm. and so does it dry up do you pursue it how does that happen do you just stuff it down do you do you explore what what do you do with all of that um and that is the work of adolescence really is to go through that transition and deal Mm -hmm. with all of those emotions you -hmm. know and so i think it's a, a, a very appropriate way to end that poem well let's go to raising the sun and let's think about walter lee younger yes how does any of this does that relate to him and then tell us how absolutely i think walter lee younger one of the lines that he says that he sometimes i can just see my future just a big big blank right and he's talking about having hopes and 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 dreams you know he's Mm -hmm. like you know (laughs) you all you know come from a time and you all used to carry spears and marching flags he's like no 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 no. you know i just give me the money he's like give me the money money. (laughs) (laughs) and that's almost like gator in um uh uh jungle fever right he's like give me 20 dollars give it you know give me the money he's like just put the money in my hand and we won't come out there and, and you know but what he's he's saying is like i've got a i've got a i've got a dream i'm i'm dying he says i see those white men out there turning deals and turning you know mm-hmm. and, and 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 i want a dream you know mm-hmm. and i want to and, and i want to build right and i want to buy what a liquor store <laughs> A liquor gonna... store. Yeah. I want to buy a liquor store. Mama said it's getting too close for me to meet my maker. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You know, so it is about dreams. So how appropriate yeah. that she would take yes. that um that poem and pull that line from it. Let me ask you this though, for, for each of you, if you have one, what would you say? Because again, if you haven't, if you don't know the, the play, I gotta say, you gotta, you know. And there are, listen, there's the original with Sidney Poitier, if you want to watch, and Ruby D. Mm, there yes. is the Esther Roll version. Mm-hmm. And there yes. is the, the re- most recent, which is Felicia Rashad and P. Diddy. Uh, my favorite yes. is the original. You know, that's my absolute yes. favorite with Sidney Poitier. And, but, but in terms of your favorite part of the whole play, I'm mm. asking a lot because there's so much. Oh, goodness. But, what would you say is your favorite part? I I I still hear a commagosie, right? <laughs> oh, commagosie! <laughs> we when the lion yeah. is waking, and Ethiopia shall stretch forth her arm again. 
it, I just love it all. I I love him, you know, messing with Bernita's date and talking about his white shoes. Right. <laughs> you college kids, what happens? You go Lou Gossett Jr. Lou Gossett yes. Jr. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, anybody have a favorite or or part that just stands out and speaks to you? Maybe mm -hmm. not your favorite. Well, one thing I would say about the play is not to get too political, but I am a conservative. I am a black conservative. Mm -hmm. And when people ask me how a black man can be conservative, one of the things I point to is raising in the sun, because mm -hmm. as I as I read the play and as I watch it, that is probably one of the most conservative plays ever written. And I'll give you an example. There was one point where um, the daughter-in-law wanted to have an abortion, and the mama made it very clear that we don't kill babies in this family. Mm -hmm. She she gave another conservative message when her daughter wanted to become an atheist. She made it very clear that faith in God was mm -hmm. integral mm -hmm. to the family. I'm going to show that scene, by the way. Yeah. Okay. There mm -hmm. were other there are other points where you saw the conservative message come through. It was um, the desire of all of them to have a better life for themselves, mm -hmm. starting with the father, of course, who worked so many decades in a, a low-paying, servile job to mm -hmm. provide for his family, uh, the desire to move from the building where they all have to share one bathroom for the whole hallway yeah, so they could have a, have a private house, the son who wanted to have his own business, the daughter who wanted to go to medical school. You see, that's the whole ambition to do better throughout the family. And I think that's another conservative message. Um, it's it, it's a very powerful conservative play, and one of the things I also appreciate about it is that it doesn't romantic overly romanticize the black experience. Mm -hmm. You know the, mm -hmm. the the chief villain in the play is not the white guys who gave them a hard time for moving to a you know a white neighborhood. It was the guy who hustled the son out of his well, father's he, money. Mm -hmm. He was the, the the guy who did the hustling was a black guy. Mm -hmm. So it goes to show um, just because someone's skin, skin folk doesn't make them kin folk. You mm -hmm. know, <laughs> it's an old expression. But, and, and that's my overall view of the play. I mean, if you want to understand black conservatism, I can't think of a better place to point to than the raisin in the sun. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I never thought about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah, have thought about it. You say yeah, that? that is interesting. I, I I will push into that and say um, when I think in terms of Willie Harris or or Mr. Linder, right, yeah. the yeah. the white guy who um, had you know to let him know that you know we you know they we don't really want you in this neighborhood or they don't want you in this neighborhood. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that piece is real. In 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 and, and there's another play that came out years later. When they did go, I don't think Lorraine wrote it. I'm I'm, I'm not sure. I can't oh. call it up right now. But when I think in terms of of Willie Harris, right? Again, you know that to me goes deep. Like the 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 what would cause him to do something like that? And, and at the end of the day, he stole the money, and it's just wrong, right? But from the emptiness, right, and the lack of hope, and you know um, that you know that this same society that Mister Linder you know, lives in, um, mm -hmm. it's all a part of it, right? And so, um, you know, it all works in tandem. Mm, yeah. 
Did mm -hmm. you all know that she experienced that in her own life? That they took on these, these rental covenants that wouldn't allow uh, black people to live there. There were white people who bought these two properties mm -hmm. and then they were, then they were allowed to then purchase that from them or, but then the court said, no, it was a whole big, I didn't know until recently. I mean, I read this uh, uh, so many times, but that was in part from her own experience of, of, you know, trying to live in a place where they were not wanted. They eventually did have to move. So wow, that was kind of well, and I lived through that. I think we shared that um, when you were on the show is that in 1973, right before the Fair Housing Act, um, mm -hmm. we tried to move and um, I'm biracial. My mom is white. And so my mom and my aunt, we all went to go look for different places. Um, and we found a place that we really loved. And then my uncle came and he's black. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, no not you know we were told to our face no mm. you can't be here um and then to dk's point we did move into public housing subsidized housing and some of the harshest treatment that we received was mm. from people who were black um that you know tried to uh because my mom like i said is white and uh horrible things were written on notes that you know were tied to rocks and thrown on our porch. And so, yeah, I, I can totally relate to, to both sides of that. Can you guys understand? I'm going to show, I'm going to show this part first where Willie Harris does what Willie Harris did and mama finds out. But before I even show it, were you mad at Walter for doing what he did? I mean, mama bounced back. Benita, she had a hard time. And I'm, mom had a hard time too, because that's her husband's, that was, you know, that $10,000 and she trusted him, what, 6,500 of it. And that was his life. And, and we're going to see what she says about that. But did do you blame him? Remember, what happens to a dream deferred? All these dreams, all these desires, seeing the white man as Chad Port, you know, point out, he's, he, because he's a chauffeur, he's seeing the places where other people are going. It's not like some people who have no clue. He's seeing, right. mm -hmm. but he can't partake. Right. And yeah. so it, it eats he him up. Right? Yeah. So, so right. do we, do we blame him? Are we mad at him? What, what are your thoughts about, about Walter Lee? Is he a toothless rat as Vanitha called him? Well, I think yeah, he's frustrated. I... He's just, oh, I'm sorry, Marie, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I think he, he's just frustrated. So I can definitely empathize with him, but the mama in me tells me, I told you. <laughs> Didn't yeah. I tell you? Yeah. You you have no idea the sacrifice. So I think, you know, you definitely can empathize with him. And I think we can, you know, we can look at even just current events and um, you know, just the the plight of the of the black family of um black black African Americans in America today. Um, you know, we can see where, man, you know, I know you fell. I know that I know that roadblock was in your way. Now get up, step over it, go around it, you know, go through it, um, whatever you need to do, you know, you're not alone, we understand. So we can empathize, but I also can't, you know, you don't get a pass for doing the wrong thing, you know, so. I, I gotta ask this though, I gotta ask this, cause I thought about this when you're saying this. Now, if you could give, go back, if you know what you know, mm -hmm. what, what what's gonna happen with the money, and you could have gone back in time and given mama advice, looking at the big picture, 
Would you have advised her to give him the money or not? You know the whole story though. I'm asking for a reason though. What would you? It's it's so interesting because you know I think the objective of the of of Mama is not to lose her son, mm -hmm. right? And it, and it seems like you know he's sliding. But not only that, the marriage, you know, and that that equals Travis, you know, the little boy, like with these these yeah. these problems. So um, and then. You know, Walter not haven't had any money. You know, he doesn't know that you can't do this with Willie Harris. Willie Harris is not a businessman, right? But he's entrusting, you know, the 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 community. He's trying to do things that, as you said, he sees um, that he's been exposed to. So I don't, I knowing what I know, but also knowing what I know about life like how mm -hmm. all things work together for good, not just the good things, right? But even the negative things works together for good, right? I don't know that I would have advised her any differently. Maybe I would have said less, just give them half. Don't give them That's six. Right, exactly. give, them, give them four or five, right? <laughs> Do you guys remember how it ends? At the end, sorry for those of you who are going to check it out, but at the end, she says, mama says, after he tells Mr. Linder where to go, she says he coming said to, she says to um Ruth he coming to his manhood tonight didn't he mm -hmm. sort of like a rainbow after the rain right yes what would yeah. he have come into his manhood without the mess up <clears throat> or would he still be the Walter Lee he was throughout telling his wife <laughs> you know who who cares about you you know who even you know Yes. So, you know, sort of like Chad says, all things work together. All right, let's take a look at that scene when the family's dreams, it seems, <clears throat> have been dashed because Walter decided to go for his dream. And so let's see that. I'm sorry, Walter. I had my life staked on this deal, too. Gone. Son, I gave you $6,500. Is it gone? All of it? Benita's money, too? Mama, I didn't go to the bank at all.
Wow. Any initial comments? Yeah, I want to say something in my man's defense there. <laughs> Nobody's hating on him, but I'm going to defend him for a second. Um, he didn't take the money and spend it at a strip club. He took the money to invest in a business that had it worked, it would be, it was a seed that he wanted to plant. And had it worked, it would be something that would have been lucrative for the family for generations. Mm -hmm. This is a, a grown man who's, I think he's like nearly 30. He's living, he's sleeping in the bed with his wife and his son and his mother's living room in a project apartment, essentially a project apartment. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make a life better for his son, for his wife, for his mom, for the sister. He did it out of, um, he was being magnanimous toward the whole family. It was not a selfish gesture to take the money. It was not just for him. It was something that would have paid dividends for a long time. And I can relate to that because my father, when he was very young, he, he started a liquor store. It took him a lot of debt to do that. But in the long term, he worked very hard in this store. In the long term, he, he got us a house. It got us, uh, got me my education. It got us other benefits of his labor. So I can relate to his entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit. I can't pronounce that word. So I'm going to just pretend I, pretend I, I'm going to pretend I pronounced it correctly. I can relate, I can relate to his spirit um, and what he did. I'm sorry he got hustled. I think his heart was in the right place. Mm. You know, I'm going to piggyback on that and say that I agree with you on that and on that DK, because I think that that's something we still see today, mm -hmm. you know, um, in all of you, you brought it, you tied it to conservatism. And one of the issues that we talk about is generational wealth and how we are trying to build a legacy for our families, because I think every generation has struggled and every generation wants better for the next than they themselves experienced. Mm -hmm. So I, I can relate to that. And I, I, I think you're right. Mm. It's complicated, isn't it? It is. You know, Chad, you mentioned uh, James Baldwin earlier. And uh, this is a quote from him about this when it opened on Broadway, shortly before it opened. It said, never before <clears throat> the entire history of the American theater has so much of the truth of Black people's lives been mm -hmm. seen on the stage. So simple. But it really runs the gamut there. And as angry as mama is, she has a response to Benita. This is maybe my favorite part because uh, when I was in high school, 10th grade, when I first read this play, we had to pick a monologue from the play and we had to do it. And I did this part in response, uh, which, was in, which is mama responding to Benita who is heated. And we know Benita is heated because of her dream. And look, everybody has a dream. But right. Walter, but but I think DK is right. I mean, I want to say, yeah. well, Walter was just going after his dream, but he checked me on that because it wasn't just about his dream. His dream was for his whole family. Didn't he say, yeah. don't I, don't, doesn't my son deserve this? My, mm -hmm. you know, who said my wife can't wear pearls? I want to put some pearls on my wife's neck. Yes, yes. And yes. so it was. So you checked me on that. That that's right. But mama being the forgiving woman that she is, because Benita, all she knows was that her dreams of being a doctor are now dashed. 
Right. So I want to look at that part. This may be my favorite part. Me and your daddy. But I thought I taught you something else too. I thought I taught you to love him. Love him? There's nothing left to love. There's always something left to love. Have you cried for that boy today? Now, I don't mean for yourself and for the family because we lost the money. I mean for him and what he's gone through. And God help him. God help him what it's done to him. Child, when do you think is the time to love somebody the most? When he's done good and made things easy for everybody. <laughs> no, no. No, that ain't the time at all. It's when he's at his lowest mm -hmm. and he can't believe in himself because the world's done whipped him so. When you start measuring somebody, measure them right, child. Measure them right. You make sure that you done taken into account the hills and the valleys he's come through to get to wherever he is. That's one of my favorite parts too, I, I I have to say. And those are words that I that I try to live by too, right? As she was saying them, I, you know, I I I know them, right? When do you think is the time to love somebody the most? You know? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I think I used to have in my classroom up, there's always something left to love. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a timeless message? Like how do how do we you know, how can we take these things? Like, it's just not some play from back in 1959. Like, whether it's in school or whether it's in our communities or whether it's in our homes, Lorraine Hansberry's message is just absolutely, mm. you know, it's timeless. You know, all right, the plant. You mentioned the plant. What's the plant represent? The plant came up. There's that plant that she's constantly fixing and watering. And, and at the end... The plant has the spotlight at the end of the play. Yes. So she left. Mm -hmm. And then what did she do? She ran back, back in the house. What is the plant symbolize? I think it symbolizes now that, you know, that I'm just really reflecting. I think it, it symbolizes resiliency. Um, it, it symbolizes um, nurturing, yes. you know, needing yes. to be nurtured. And um, I'll stop there. The reward of the hope, you know, mm -hmm. that that there is, had she not, had she just given up and thrown it away, like, oh, this is never going to work. This is never going to grow. This is never going to come to fruition. You know, that, that was definitely symbolic of their family. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. All right. I would well, just say, I would just say growth. I mean, um, going back to what I was saying before, that, that the ambition that each one of them had for better lives. Uh, there's no better symbol for the desire to grow than a plant. I mean, what else do plants do but but grow? You take care of a plant, you feed it, you nurture it, you give it enough sunlight and everything else, it grows. So, and, and I think in literature, I think that's a, that's a very strong meme, um, plants. Mm -hmm. And an allusion to what we talked about from the Bible. Mm -hmm. I think it's symbolic. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I think there's a lot of symbolism even in the names. Mm -hmm. And Benitha, when she said, you know, I'm tired of hearing about God all the time. Uh, you know, does he pay tuition? You know? And she said, you about to get your jaw slapped. God hasn't got a thing to do with it. Benita, that just wasn't necessary. No, Mama, neither is God. I get sick of hearing about God all the time. Benita! Mama, I mean it. Now, I'm just tired of hearing about God all the time. What has he got to do with anything? Does he pay tuition? You about to get your fresh little jaw slapped. That's just what she needs, all right? Why? Now, why can't I say what I want to say around here like everybody else? Because it don't sound nice for a young girl to be talking like that. You wasn't brought up that way. Me and your daddy went to the trouble to get you and brother to church every single Sunday. Mama, you don't understand. Now, you see, it's all a matter of ideas, and, and God is just one idea that I don't accept. Now, it's not important. I'm not going to go out and be immoral or, or commit crimes because I don't believe in God. I don't even think about that. It's just that I get so tired of him getting the credit for all the things the human race achieves through its own stubborn effort. Now, there simply is no God. There's only man. And it's he who makes miracles. you say after me in my mother's house there is still god in my mother's house there is still god in my mother's house there's still god And I've always loved that part, you know, as a Christian, I really love it. Yes. But I, I, I heard something where it says it's, it's, it's not about atheism at all. That line, real that part that it's about who Benita is. It establishes her character as separate from the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. Can anybody elaborate on that? Well, I think um, in her mind, she's growing. She's outgrowing her family. And she is, mom, but I, I have all these ideas and you wouldn't understand because you're here, but I'm here. And, you know, and uh, and I forgot her, her is it, what's her um, boyfriend's name? Her friend. Asagai? Asagai, yeah. And Asagai this and Asagai that. And, you know, you you wouldn't know in the in, in Africa, in the mother country, you know, and, and we are we are princes and we are queens and we are, you know, you get that powerful. But she said her, her feeling, I think, is and her, her mind is, um, you know, I've outgrown this. Mm -hmm. I've outgrown this. Yeah. And, this and, what's her, and what's her name again? Benita. Benita. <laughs> and so, so it's, I can't take credit for this, but I just read this, that because, I mean, she is, she's going to college. She's going to be a doctor. She, they talk about how she has all these different hobbies and mm -hmm. they pour into her. They truly do pour into her because I do believe they see her as the future. She represents that hope of the future. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And she has outgrown them. In other words, they are beneath her. Mm. And I just, I, you know, I don't know if uh, Lorraine Hansberry was thinking about that, but it looks like she's got a design for, you know, for everything in this. So, all right. Any last comments on that? I, I just want to go back to what I was saying before about, you know, as a conservative, I see the conservative message in the play. And Benita is obviously the the token progressive in the play. You know, she's. She's almost a stereotype of what a progressive is, at least in today's terms. She's very well educated. 
She's uh, atheistic or leans toward atheism. She believes very strongly in a, a foreign culture, not American culture, but African culture. Um, so her values and the values of her of her mother, with who I see as a, like an avatar of conservatism, is a very interesting conflict. And you saw that conflict come to a head in, in the scene you just mentioned. Interesting. I would I would add to that. I think what's really interesting is that on some level, I think they all kind of want the same things though, right? Like Bernita wants to be able to navigate and have agency, right? And I think I think she maybe wants that for her family. She certainly wants it for the future, right? And I feel like Walter wants to to do the same thing, right? Um, but it's 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 at the different levels, right? And so yes, she's been educated, or as he says, that she's a progressive. But I feel like they're all, as you said earlier, Adrian, the dream, that dream, right? Yeah. They're all dreaming of something that is um higher and 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 better um than you know the generations of of their parents mm -hmm. now what if you look at the um um the wife the mo mother and she's pregnant now oh uh, uh, Ruth. Uh, Ruth. Mm -hmm. Ruth. um she kind of she seems just so tired <laughs> and afraid to take a risk do you get that feeling from her like she is you know I don't know I don't I don't I'm not sure I believe in this dream you're always talking about it but you know I, I just want to stay you know I just want to survive mm. you know is there yeah. a is there a message in I I just want to survive you know I, I don't have any big lofty ideas here I'm not one to you know jump first think about it later just like you know eat the oatmeal yeah just get along to Go along to get along. That's so interesting. Um, the part that that what that reminds me of, um, Kia, is <laughs> when Mama tells her, you know, you're, you're not going to work today, right? She says, call them and tell them you've got pneumonia, something that white people put down or something, right? You know, yeah. but she would just work herself, you know, just yes, just just right one foot in front of the other, right? right. And so I think that's another hmm. that's that's another part of mm -hmm. you know. Our lives. So as bald as you said, Baldwin says, right? There's no bigger or truer picture of you know African American life. Mother to son. It's one of my favorite links mm -hmm. poems. And and that's one of the lines that she was going to uh to use for, for her play. Langston Hughes was uh was born in Joplin, Missouri. So we have a wall of of fame down by the river and his pictures on it along with some other greats. And uh, I was down there one time for something and back in, I think 2017. And so impromptu decided to, uh, I was with a, uh, my friend Christine decided to do this poem down there. And if I can get this to play, uh, I will, um, here it is. I will play this down by the river uh, in, uh, by, on the railroad tracks. Mother to son by Langston Hughes. Well, son, I tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stamp. It's had tacks in it, and spinners, and boards torn up, and places with no carpet on the floor. There. But all the time, I've been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners. And sometimes going in the dark. But it ain't been no light. So boy, 
Don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find this kind of hard. Don't you fall now. Her eyes still going, honey. Her eyes still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. I love that poem. Mm -hmm. And again, a raisin in the sun could have been called mm -hmm. crystal stair, mm -hmm. right? Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. So he goes from the similes that are filled with that um uh Harlem is filled with to the metaphor of the crystal stair. Um what are your thoughts about that poem or maybe even that line having been the title of A Reason in the Sun? What are your thoughts about the poem in general? That's an essential one for me too. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, literature has that ability. Like, I feel like some of these poems have helped to raise me. You know what I mean? Like, while my mother didn't say it, I, I got it early enough right, to know, um, to become one with it and to know that life wasn't a crystal stair for my mom or for my grandmother, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that when I think I find it kind of hard, right, that I, you know, they're still climbing and, and turning and reaching and sometimes mm -hmm. going in the dark, you know, places where there ain't been no light, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't sit down. So for me, these are, I told you, this is my sight. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Crystal Stair uh, would be a better title than A Raisin in the Sun. Anybody? I think they're right. both, they both express something, you know, um, that it could have gone either way. Mm -hmm. And and we would still have understood that. And been none the wiser. <laughs> right? Yeah. Maybe. I think, I think A Raisin in the Sun, and you know, this is hindsight. Um, this is after the fact. I think when I think about a crystal stare um, is there is, you know, hope at the end. It's encouragement. So don't you set down. Right. Because you think you find it kind of hard. But a raisin in the sun, I feel like really captures because it's it's about that dream. It's a, it's just it's about all of it. Right. It's it's, a you know, the dream deferred, all of it. We're going to stop right here, but we are not done, as you can tell. I just wanted to break this up into two parts. So check out part two. This is such a rich conversation and it continues. <laughs>